Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Professor Scott Reeves is joining us all the way across the Atlantic in London. Uh, Dr. Reeves is at the Center for Health and Social Care Research, and he's a professor of interprofessional research at Kingston Hill Campus at the University of London. Why are we talking about interprofessional research? When you, when you dive in a little bit, Scott is an expert on the things that any of us struggle with, which is building a team, helping a team take shape, helping a team to soar. Medicine for sure. But anything, sports, you name it, it's got an application. Scott, thank you so much for joining us and bringing some of this wisdom to help us understand what it is is at stake and what we're trying to figure out here. It's a pleasure, Mark. Good to talk. Set the table for us a little bit. Interprofessional research sounds very academic. For some people, it might sound a little bit intimidating. Set the table for us a little bit. What are we actually talking about? When, when, you, when you're called by someone or when you go and, and do work somewhere, what is the skill set that, that you're able to help people um, build and develop? Right. That's a good question. Uh, what, what I'm trying to do um, is, um, is trying to understand why uh, we have so much, uh, so many problems within uh, the delivery of, of care. Uh, you know, when you look at things like the Institute of Medicine's uh, reports on um, why healthcare sort of fails, it's often due to poor communication between different providers, between physicians, nurses, pharmacists, etc. And um, one of the big problems is that if you track it back to their education and their socialization, these guys uh, traditionally haven't been sort of taught together to collaborate. So they've gone through their respective professional programs um, and they sort of come at the end and they're just assumed they're going to be good team players, good collaborators. And we find out that's not actually the case. Either they're good physicians, they're good nurses, but they have difficulty collaborating with one another, communicating in a timely fashion, coordinating their work, negotiating um, joint decision making. So a lot of my work is around trying to sort of go in and understand uh, the problems locally in, in depth um, and look for sort of solutions. And those sort of come in different um sort of packages depending on the local context. Uh, some of it will be some training or retraining that, that, that's needed. Um, also, we, we sort of look at redesigning the workplace as well to, to ensure that work practices can support interprofessional communication and collaboration in a more um, collaborative fashion. You nailed it with what you said about we assume. And you're absolutely right. I, I mean, when I was a medical student, this was not part of the skill set that we were learning. It was role modeled for sure. But for, mo- for the most part, it went unspoken. Residency, you go out and become an attending, same kind of a thing. It's just sort of expected. The issue is, too, I think that in a lot of these contexts, the physician is going to be automatically looked to as the team leader, for better or for worse. And if they don't have that skill set of how do I communicate properly, how do I you know, build a message, how do I you know, build consensus, the team is going to go nowhere. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and one of the good things, actually, in the last 10, 15 years, um, and we've seen it across the world, is that there is more interprofessional education. So the stuff that sort of helps support um, 
healthcare providers to collaborate in a more effective manner. So again, we're seeing, and, and you know, America at the moment, um, there's a new, uh, relatively new national center for interprofessional practice and education, which is based in Minnesota. And, um, and they're really doing some growth in terms of trying to strengthen um, the models that we have out there to improve and support better coordination and collaboration. So we're um, you know, it wasn't around in your time when you were coming and training, but now it's actually more commonplace for, for different providing group, provider groups as students to come together and actually start learning and training. And we see a whole variety of different types of interprofessional education activities. So, that, you know, there's classroom, but a, a sort of a case-based learning, there's simulation, there's more practice-based uh, opportunities as well. So we're seeing, um, you know, a, a, an expansion of this. And, uh, and hopefully, I mean, Part of the issue is at the moment is the research has to kind of catch up with mm-hmm. the curriculum developments is yeah. to try and get some evidence to have a look at, you know, what are the effects of these types of interventions. What do you think flipped the switch? I mean, I didn't finish my training that long ago. I finished medical school in 2003 and finished residency in 2006. And I think you're absolutely, I agree with you that these things have developed sort of in that interval period of time. What flipped that switch? What helped people to recognize, all right, we need to leverage Dr. Reeves' skill set. We need to address these questions. Was there sort of a, a series of seminal events that ca- that happened or what, what caused that sort of sea change in thinking? Well, in the States, actually, it was the Institute of Medicine's report in 2000 um, mm. that sort of found that uh, something like 100,000 deaths every year. And actually, I mean, that number's been revised um, over, over the years since 2000. But back then, it was 100,000 uh, patients are dying as a result of these communication failures. And that was a big sort of shake-up um, call. Uh, and, you know, and we find with other sort of um, improvement uh, work that's done that, again, it, it is these failures. So I guess, I guess in many sense, it was that trigger uh, in 2000. And then, you know, it takes a little bit of time for the universities to sort of catch up and start developing the curriculums and, and expanding them. And I think it was probably around when you were training, but it was more sort of patchy. You know, there's some institutions have been doing it a bit longer than others. Um, but certainly um, in the last five or 10 years, yeah, I mean, we, we've seen a kind of critical mass. And in my travels around the world, in Japan, in Norway, for instance, um, in Taiwan, um, in Australia, in New Zealand, we're seeing now a lot of um, yeah, uh, educational providers c- coming together and actually, you know, learning. I mean, some of this stuff now is is out there. Um, so, you know, some of the work is disseminated so you can get a sense of what others are doing. And that sort of helps uh, build the field. Do you feel like that same energy level that you've seen is consistent around the world, whether it's the United States, the UK, Japan? Is it similar? Or are there other countries that are pushing this further and faster? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting. I mean, I, I've been involved in uh, sort of interprofessional work for over 20 years now. I started back in the early 90s. And, um, and, and sort of during this time, you've seen sort of ebbs and flows of um, activity. So Canada got really invested in it. And this is sort of when the policymakers get sort of excited and then funds start sort of rolling. So sort of the um, early 2000s, Canada got very, very sort of, um, you know, interested in it. And there was a lot of activity. But that sort of washed through in the last um, three to four years now. America's kind of picked it up. Um, but you've seen some other uh, sort of countries, the Nordic countries in Europe have just sort of quietly got on with it. Um, Japan had sort of had a, a real big interest 
a few years ago. That's kind of quietened down a little bit. But what you see, if you sort of look globally, are, you know, sort of um, these crests of, of activity, they, they sort of do wash through, but they often get picked up again sort of later on. Because often it's sort of, you know, it takes a kind of combination of policymakers, practitioners, um, you know, funders, professional accreditors, regulators, uh, you know, to come together. And, and there's this sort of critical mass, which then gets sort of, um, you know, people talking and, and activity sort of building from that. It must have been a sense of vindication for you then if this is something that you've been working on, obviously, the the entire breadth of your career to suddenly have all of now international eyes kind of being focused on this issue. When they email you, call you, ask for your input, are you noticing consistent themes in whether it's Canada, Japan, Scandinavian countries, similar questions, similar concerns, similar obstacles, or does it, are you noticing maybe some regional variation? The, yeah, I mean, nationally, people struggle with the same kind of thing. Um, and a lot of it is, um, and I know we'll touch upon this a little bit later in the conversation. Um, when we're thinking about sort of implementing interprofessional activities or, or interventions, this is essentially managing change. Mm-hmm. Um, so often people want to, um, you know, want advice, want support, want guidance in terms of how they can sort of switch from doing things traditionally where professionals worked in sort of silos and worked on their own, you know, in, in isolation from one another to how they kind of come together and be more collaborative uh-huh. uh, and a lot of my work actually also is synthesized sort of the building evidence base we, you know again from around the world and and you can see those sort of national trends that um it's about sort of um policy maker support it's about sort of funding um to get these things sort of up and running it's sort of a, a whole bunch of curricular activities in terms of faculty to support develop um facilitators to, to, to deliver this stuff effectively um you know it's a whole range of, of, of different elements often i get called um upon to help people figure out how they're going to cl- gather the evidence yeah. so that you know they've got a new curriculum developed uh, developed or a new intervention uh we going to then you know develop evidence which we can publish and, and you know can, can, can help us figure out stuff and get disseminated more widely do you get the sort of phone call obviously star wars just came out i just saw it it's on my mind do you kind of get the panicked help us obi-wan you're our only hope <laughs> we're launching a hand washing initiative and it's not going well does that sort of happen is that well i'm i'm actually i guess i'd like to think i'm more of the hand solo uh <laughs> i like it because you know, there, there are some there's some older older um sort of guys in the field who are more obi-wan in, in their kind of outlook so right. i like to think I'm a, I'm a little bit dynamic i go in i try and um fly under the radar a little bit You're the but you know <laughs> ultimately try and um and help out mm-hmm. when people do sort of want a little bit of um, support and guidance so what are those common things that that trigger a phone call or an email to you that you know, where people say we need you. I mean, let's let's dive into the granular level. Are there, you know, one or two of the things that are really common? Obviously, we want to be able to go forth and work with our teams and be successful. And no one wants to reinvent the wheel. Give us one or two of those kind of common things. And look, no one expects there to be secret sauce, but common uh, common calls and a common solution that you can deploy. So, so often what, what happens is that um, the management or you know, senior management of uh, an institution, educational institution or, or a hospital, for instance, um, decide that they want to adopt and, and develop into professional approaches. So then um, it often then gets sort of dropped down to some poor um, poor guy or, you know, or girl who has to then uh, effectively implement it. So, you know, they've got the pressure from above to sort of get things up and running. And they often, you know, naturally go 
have a look around, do some reading. Um, but, you know, often they're trying to figure out how to operationalize locally in their own context uh, these very complicated interventions. Because, again, drawing together two or more professional groups to do anything isn't an easy task to do, given the sort of hundreds of years that the different provider groups have been working on their own. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got their own separate accreditation and, and regulatory bodies. You know, they've got their own um, sort of socialization practices, etc. Everybody so, who's um, listening is everyone who's listening is vigorously nodding their head right now. <laughs> so essentially, yeah, I mean, it's, it's for them to try and operationalize and get something up and running in the local context. So at that point, I get sort of asked to come in and, um, you know, try to sort of work with them. And actually, one of the things that I've noticed, and I'm not a, a healthcare provider, I'm a sociologist um, who's been working in healthcare. I've been sort of, I'm a guest, I see, you know, who's been invited in to try and help my colleagues. But one of the nice things about not being a healthcare provider is that what I see with my colleagues who are is that they're often um, they're doers. They want to get stuff done. They're problem solvers. Uh, they're, you know, their training has produced uh, these these great people that just sort of get things done uh, quickly. But often when you're dealing with complex issues, if you just dive in and start getting things done uh, without a correct sort of um, assessment of the local context, that's where you come undone. So often I, I, I then have to come in and try and figure out why something that's initially getting up and running is going wrong. And again, it's a lot a lot linked into local contextual sort of um, conditions. Why when you say that, I mean, are you talking about all the way down to the level of just the single hospital, the single office? Are you talking about a local community? What is the biggest driver of that context? That's something that obviously comes up frequently for you is what is that? Is that a, is it a cultural issue? What, what is that driver? So we can look for it. Well, it's, it's, again, it's local. Um, it's, it's linked into sort of specific units. So mm -hmm. a lot of, I've done a, a, a work when I was out in North America uh, in, in ICUs um, and we've been going to observational work and you can see, yeah, there are common practices across different ICUs, but each one is absolutely individual. So actually, if you want to tailor something to make things change within an ICU, you've got to understand that particular ICU in terms of how um, work practices function, what are the hierarchical issues, what are the cultural kind of norms and established practices. So again, you know, you, you, and, and you can transfer that to sort of departments and universities. You know, each, you've got to understand the component parts of the local um, sort of department or unit that you're working within. So it's that kind of granular, it's that sort of local that you need to understand. And obviously you need, then need to link it to other units and, and you know, link it to its sort of um, other component parts within the broader organization. So that sounds like that lays in that foundation then of at least you know who the key players are, what the what the idiosyncrasies are. Yeah. I want to get to this diagram that you and I have talked about before. It's actually what got us in touch in the first place. It's it's a it's a one page diagram. There'll be a link to it on my website. Managing complex change, and it sounds like obviously that's what people need your help with is to help them manage complex change. I can tell you when you put those three words together. For most audiences, the first thing that happens is people's eyes either glaze over or they start rolling. Yeah. It, it engenders a really visceral response or people like, I don't want to hear about this anymore. Is that a, is that a common experience that you find as well in your travels? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, you, you know, the, the issue, I mean, managing complex change and, and interprofessional um, approaches are, are sort of linked because, I mean, you know, one is, is, is essentially the other. And we've got this phrase over in, in the UK, you know, interprofessional approaches is like Marmite. And Marmite is this, uh, <laughs> is this spread you put on um, toast yeah. and uh, you either love it or you hate it. <laughs> and uh, so it's absolutely like that. You know, people will either roll their eyes and, you know, wander off or they'll be, you know, completely engrossed with, with this type of uh, work. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> that's very, very good. It's it, You're going to capture 10% of the audience is going to say, oh, that's the best thing ever. And everyone else is going to say, <laughs> get that away from me. That's right. So in this diagram that you put up, again, I, I, I don't want to step on it. I want everyone to go and look at it. It breaks it into a couple of really small pieces, this issue of managing complex change. And the first thing that it did is at least it makes it digestible. It makes it accessible because, again, the first step from from my perspective in any sort of project that we've ever tried to implement, whether, you know, quality improvement or whatever it may be, it's just helping people get over that first thing of, oh, my God, it's another project and I just don't want to deal with this. You list these factors, vision plus skills, plus incentives, plus resources, plus action plan equals change. The cool thing about this, you go through and what happens when you blot out any one of those things and trying to implement a project. It's not an oversimplification, this diagram. And again, I want people to take a chance to look at it so you'll have some context of what we're talking about. It's it's actually a perfect representation. What happens, do you think, what is the difference between knocking out one of those things versus having the full skill set? Well, you know, and, and I think I mentioned this before, Mark, um, you know, I only wish I'd actually created this um, uh, model. It was someone else that created it. I, I kind of came upon it. And again, it resonated with me in terms of um, a, a kind of map, really, uh, to understand local conditions. So, you know, any one of those um, elements locally, if you don't have them in place, uh, are going to kind of, you know, generate confusion or anxiety or resistance. We see a lot of resistance, uh, actually, uh, when you're trying to implement this type of, you know, change interprofessionally, this frustration or, or, you know, series of false starts. So, again, it's about trying to make sure when you're going in and you're making this change, you try and get each of those component parts. Because if if one of them is missing, it's going to generate some problem which you then have to try and overcome. Do you find it's, it's really interesting. There's this idea. You've probably seen it too. You know, you'll see a magazine where they'll put a, you know, it'll be the football preview issue and they'll say, what are the components that make for the best football player? And it'll be, you know, some guys, you know, we're talking American football here. Sorry. Yeah. It'll be some guy's arm and some guy, some other quarterback's head and some other quarterback's feet. But when you take away one of those parts, they are miserable. It's the same here. You, you've got to have, you've got to be this five tool player. In order to execute change, um, do you find that when people get that, when they see that, hey, I need to have all of these pieces, does that help create buy-in and enthusiasm just to at least help people define exactly what they're going to need to launch a project and to launch change, implement change successfully? Yeah, I mean, it gives them a roadmap. It gives them, um, you know, a, a, a kind of an approach to think about. Uh, because often, as I, as I said earlier, people sort of jump in and think they can kind of implement change. Uh, you know, they've worked in an organization for a long time. You know, they, their sense is they know it very well. Uh, but actually, they only know a part of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And then if they sort of in, try to initiate something, you know, certainly on an interprofessional basis. So you want to get in you know, colleagues from other uh, professions to come in with you. There are, you know, there are these things that you need to be be mindful of. Um, uh, you know, issues that they haven't considered, you know, really. And and often, uh, you know, I, I talk about it 
the sociology of, of health care professions. You know, you have to remember that sort of medicine and nursing, for instance, share this history of, for 300 years. It's gendered, you know, it's patriarchal in nature. Um, so they've got to kind of figure out these social historical broader issues with the local stuff as well. So this, you know, this is really complicated kind of work we're doing. And this roadmap will certainly help with the local context. But you have to also be mindful of the sort of broader issues uh, as you go through it as well. When you lay in this foundation now, we've laid down a really solid foundation of local context, understanding what's going on, understanding the historical context, which obviously delights me with my background in history. We always need to know where we're coming from and understanding the lessons of the past. Once we have that in place and we're still trying to move and we're building consensus, we want to move forward. What is the sort of illuminated path that we're supposed to follow? Um, where do you where do you like to see your teams that you're working with take that momentum? What direction do they need to start moving? Well, I, I'm I'm very keen on you know once you're getting things up and running is is to is to collect data. Mm-hmm. And one of the big again the big problems with working health sciences with my colleagues um, is that. They, they often truly believe in something. We're about going back to the Marmite principle, you know, these are the guys that love it. So they believe in it wholeheartedly. It's ideological, you know, it's a firm belief. Um, and so they don't want to collect evidence because there's, a, there's no need to because it must be great because we're doing it. And actually, you know, that is, an, again, another sort of short-sighted issue. If you want something to sustain and change to be sort of longer term in nature, um, you need to gather evidence for uh, its success um, and even you know, evidence for where there are some problems because you, you can then pick them up empirically and then you can think about them and then, and then you know, address those problems and carry on. But the key thing is, is, you know, is, is to gather evidence, empirical data that gives you a sense of where you're going. So you can share it with your local managers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can share it with your colleagues from different professions. But you can also then you know, inform others that are sort of setting out and, and, and you know, undertaking this journey for the first time because because they need to know this stuff. We've, we've often not been good at sharing and disseminating our work. It's getting better and there's more work coming out there now. But, you know, often uh, I go around talking to colleagues um, around the world and, and they're telling me, well, we've been doing this stuff for 10, 20 years. And I said, that's great. You know, what have you published? Where, where is it? And, you know, we don't do that. We, you know, we just sort of work locally. And in, in some senses, it's, it's almost unethical that they're doing this great work and they're not telling others yeah. and allowing others to sort of have that wisdom to implement it themselves. It's a funny dynamic. And I, I, I agree with you 100%. I think in medicine, particularly with, uh, you know, groupthink, situational change, you know, building a consensus locally, building a project, implementing a project. It's only been recently that the idea of information sharing has really propagated. Before that, everyone just had to keep reinventing the wheel and it's annoying. Yeah. Absolutely, which is actually one of the nice things about the the National Center in the U.S. for Interprofessional Practice and Education, um, and also um, where I'm uh, over in the U.K. We've we've got our own um, national organization, CAPE, the Center for the Advancement of Interprofessional Education, and if you go on their websites, um, you know then there now are a great set of resources. You know, faculty development resources, curriculum development resources, uh, interventions um, that you can kind of uh, models that you can use. So again, the notion of a sort of the, uh, the the spread the, the you know the wider sort of usage of this key information uh, is is certainly beginning to be addressed now because I, when I go and talk to colleagues I, I sort of point them to these different websites and say look go and you know go and have a look at these resources yeah. you get a lot of really useful information there um, you know we're no longer having to reinvent the wheel 
because it's out there, you know, and it's freely downloadable, most of it. Do you feel like a lot of the projects that people are undertaking are also the same projects? Because certainly we have, you know, the core measures from CMS. We have, you know, the common quality indicators from the Society of Hospital Medicine. Most professions, when they're trying to improve something, everyone's trying to improve the same things, hand washing, whatever it may be. So are there now, you know, people are obviously trying to build vaults of resources so that when you decide at your place, you want to try and fix this, that you don't have to go back and basically start from scratch, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and absolutely, there are some some key approaches to think about when you're um, kind of moving on. So there's some similarities that, you, you know, you're absolutely right. There's the same drive, the same sort of pressures um, that they're out there, which mean that people have to sort of respond, uh, you know, to, to get these projects up and running. But again, my, my kind of point, and I, and I keep repeating it and I, and I will keep repeating it until, you know, the penny drops for, for many people is about the local context. Yeah. Uh, you can get these models their application to the local context. Um, one of the pieces of work that, that came out of our ICU project that we did, and this was looking at ICUs in, in the US and Canada uh, over a period of two years, lots, about a thousand hours of observational work. So going in, observing the practices of these different ICUs. And we, ju- we developed, uh, we're just finalizing it now, a toolkit that will help um, providers to have a set of um, tools to go in and actually diagnose the, the, you know, the local uh, context and then some tools that they can use tailored to that what they find in the local context to actually then implement the, the change that they want to implement so again it's I, I guess that's probably where the um there's that sort of gap at the moment it's about picking up and understanding what the local context conditions are and then implementing uh, and kind of tailoring your uh, intervention accordingly I think and that's that, where a lot of people do sort of come unstuck a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I mean, I have to congratulate you. I think that you really have identified one of the key things that that limits projects. And you know, I'll 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 be a little rough here. I think it gets a little bit to the arrogance of medicine, where a study is published. It's maybe published in an illustrious journal, or it's put in a you know a, a society website that this is going to work for everybody. This is easily generalizable. Go forth yep. and prosper. It just doesn't work like that. Up to this point, it just engenders frustration and a sense of sort of distrust that when, you know, this sort of governing body says this is the right way to do something. Well, you have no idea what it's like for us at our institution. That idea, I think the fact that you are emphasizing this point that before anything else, establish your local context, understand your players, you know, and and understand what their needs are going to be and then tailor some of this stuff. It's just I think that's sort of a lot of that's going to be the secret sauce. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, everyone's looking, um, you know, wrongly for the, for the silver bullet, you know, yeah, for yeah. the thing that's going to f- make the fix. Um, and we had it, it was quite interesting, about five or so years ago, the the surgical checklists came out and they were held up as this great play, you know, great uh, uh, intervention that we're going to change surgical practices, get t- t- teams talking to one another. Um, and, you know, what we found um, when there was a little bit of work done to sort of see how people were actually using them is, of course, they were used very, very differently all over the, the world. That some people were, were just, just going through because these lists, these, these surgical checklists was meant to sort of uh, encourage interprofessional dialogue. Um, you know, it was made sure that certain elements within the operation were kind of checked off and everyone agreed. But, um, you know, and, and on the sort of surface level, everybody said these things were great and they were using them. But, you know, um, 
when we found some work, um, sociological work, uh, and you know revealed that locally there was huge variance in terms of how people were using them. Uh, often they would just people would just go through them and nobody would necessarily respond. You know, so completely undermining that their, their, their sort of purpose. So again, you know, when when someone publishes this sort of next silver bullet, I'm always extremely skeptical about it mm-hmm. because. Trying to implement this stuff is going to be, uh, you know, that's where the, the sort of, you know, the devil in the detail is. Um, and we're never going to get the one silver bullet, you know, trying to intervene to sort of affect change in, in organizations interprofessionally. Uh, it's going to take a series of different types of interventions, educational work, changes in sort of the work practices, you know, the, the, the sort of workflow issues, but also, you know, changes to the organizational practices as well. So it's going to be, you know, and, and actually the how the local sort of um, organizational is depends on what, what, what sort of element you're going to need whether you're going to need more education or more practice redesign or more organizational reform you know and combinations between those so again it's all about the local tailoring to to affect um you know this change and then get some evidence for it so you want to obviously find ways then for any sort of project manager to leverage their local leadership too to not say we're going to pull this thing off of illustriouswebsite.com and it's going to work for us. But hey, let's get a team together of our own people who know our institution, who know the, the key players here, right? I mean, is that seems like a very rational and reasonable first step if we're going to build based on the model that obviously your expertise is spreading around the world. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's about um, stopping and, and trying to um, often go um, against uh, an instinct uh, that, you ha- that, that that people have in, in health sciences to just go and do stuff, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to stop, make a careful um, assessment of the local situation, understand what the ebbs and flows are, you know, in terms of the practices, the communication uh, approaches, the rules, the regulations, uh, because, again, it's understanding the sort of formal uh, way an organizational unit runs and then the informal, you know, those cultural practices that, that are embedded. Uh, and once you have a sense of those, at that point, can you start thinking about how to implement and, and go forward? But I don't think you want to limit yourself just to medicine. I mean, I think these are key principles that any profession could could find some some value and utility to anytime they're trying to implement any sort of change. Do you Are you being sought out by people groups outside of medicine or just outside or outside of the sciences as a whole no i mean absolutely i'm often uh, it's often nurses um mm-hmm. uh, nursing colleagues that will, will approach me so when i'm talking about managing change i mean i only do interprofessional work so mm-hmm. effectively where there's problems interprofessional sort of tensions or friction it's when i kind of uh, are kind of called in to try and help uh, understand that and try and figure it out and, and move forward so absolutely you're right i mean uh, it Clearly, um, you know, it's needed in medicine, but but absolutely on an interprofessional basis to improve the way that teams work together, to improve the way that communication is um, enacted, to, you know, ensure that coordination is more effective in nature, to make sure ultimately the patients, um, you know, don't get hurt and and actually don't get killed. I mean, this is the big problem. Patients continually, day to day, are getting killed because we're still, um, you know, in, in health sciences, still missing um, some key elements about coming together and, and communicating. It's jarring to hear you say that, but it does cycle us back to the key piece that, like you said before, launched all of this, that we need to do everything we can because there is a lot at stake here. That's also probably a good way to get buy-in, to just take it back to that level of, look, if we do these things successfully, outcomes are better. 
across the board. If we don't do these things successfully, things are going to go sideways in a big hurry. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's it's just intriguing that this can be sort of overlooked and, and continues to get overlooked to a degree. Uh, a colleague saying, you know, I mean, thinking about back to that Institute of Medicine report, you know, 100,000 patients every year in the US alone getting killed because of a clinical error. You know, if that was the airline industry, so if 100,000 people were falling out of the skies and uh, and dying every year, just think of how quickly the industry would change to, to you know, address that kind of problem. But it, it, it allows to get continued. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're seeing it across the world that there are still these uh, big problems with sort of really um, challenging local sort of cultures. Uh, in the UK in the last couple of years, there was a, a big crisis uh, in, in one hospital that had this terrible culture where uh, professions were talking to one another and patients were being overlooked and neglected and, and, and died. Uh, you know, and, and this is 2013 when it was all going on. You know, we think we should be doing a lot better. Uh, having a conversation recently and a, a very senior nurse was saying, you know, why are we talking about this you know, in 2015, um, should, have, haven't we addressed these issues yet? And it's no, we haven't. Uh, and they continue to, um, you know, bedevil us. And that's part of the problem, too, is that I think some of the language that we use and uh, that to, to describe this stuff, like we talked about before, it kind of causes a little bit of the eye glaze and the eye roll. Um, it's, you know, you're bringing a new language and a new approach to this, which I think is really important because I think it does need a shot in the arm. Um, I think people need to be reminded, you know what, it takes hard work, it takes commitment, but my God, if you're in medicine, this is the reason to be in medicine because now you are doing scalable interventions to affect not just the one patient you're seeing in that moment, but affecting potentially everyone at your institution. Absolutely. What does uh, a and, snapshot and it, of success look like? So obviously we've talked a lot about challenges and difficulties and obviously what's at stake, but what does a snapshot of success look like? You've been doing this for a while. When it works, what happens? So, uh, you know, I mean, it's like um, if you think about it, again, in different con- contexts and so general medicine or, or, or ICUs, it's it's where professionals will come together, will communicate timely, will be uh, open to, um, you know, thinking about their, their, their sort of work together, sharing information, being patient and family member centric. So rather than, you know, being focused on their own kind of needs, really embracing and engaging that family and, and patient centered approach. Um, and, and, you know, you, and you, you, you can see it. And there are some great practices around where there is that free flow of decision making. There, there's that sort of um, uh, non-hierarchical approach, you know, that it isn't around trying to sort of keep those traditional hierarchies with medicine uh, in the dominant position and other healthcare providers under it. It's about sharing, working on a sort of level playing fields. Uh, in, in one of our publications, we talked about this contingency based approach to healthcare where a team will effectively uh, respond to what the local needs of the patients are. So, you know, when they come in, for instance, in a, an emergency or an acute care, yeah, it will be the physician and the nurse working closely together. But as they transition and get better, they need more rehab. You know, it will be the therapist, physical therapist uh, that take the lead uh, or, the, or, or the occupational therapist, and then they get just sort of discharged. So this contingency-based interprofessional team will, um, you know, react according to the local patient's needs and leadership, we know, will, will shift from medicine to nursing to the therapist. So, again, that's what the sort of successful team or, or approach would look like, accessible, you know, responding to, to local needs 
um, you know, uh, effective, you know, in their uh, in their communication, their coordination. It's going to take hard work to get there, but that's where we need to be. I mean, that's the team that is truly humming um, and Absolutely. functioning at a really, really high level. We've talked about not wanting to reinvent the wheel. So let's make sure, where do we find you? Obviously, you are widely published. You're an online presence. You're on Twitter. Where do we find you? Well, I'm mostly at St. George's Hospital. Um, I've actually uh, just moved from Kingston. Um, so I'm back into um, into London, so in the UK. Um, and I, I, I do actually travel a lot, uh, working with colleagues um, in, in Europe, in North America, um, over in Australia, New Zealand as well. Um, so um, easy to contact. Um, you just have to Google Professor Scott Reeves or Scott Reeves PhD because if you Google just Scott Reeves, you get the far better looking actor. There was an actor, uh, day, yeah. <laughs> of, of days of our lives, I think. Right, right. Um, but once you sort of um, find me on on Google, uh, you get the email and uh, you know do 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 make contact because I, again I I'm um, you know really passionate about doing this kind of work and uh, if I can help colleagues figure out uh, you know some of their sort of difficulties um, you know that's what it's all about with me and then you know try and encourage them and work with them to get evidence for the things that they do as well and we can find you on Twitter at ji care correct that's right yeah. And that links so, yeah. us also to the Journal of Interprofessional Care, which you're a big part of. That's right. Yeah. So that that the Twitter really was to sort of um, disseminate the um, the Journal of Interprofessional Care's papers, and and that's and that's what I and that's what we do. But we also sort of tweet other things. Um, and um, and I'm the editor in chief of the journal. So again, people are interested in looking at teamwork and, and interprofessional communication collaboration. Uh, it's an excellent resource to to have a look at. Um, and again, if you just ju- Google Journal of Interprofessional Care, you'll get our main website. Uh, we've got a LinkedIn page and a Facebook page as well. There's a lot of stuff that's there that really isn't anywhere else. Uh, and some of it is is pretty provocative because it's just basically thinking about, again, the foundations of change. It's not what is the end going to look like. It's how do we start this properly so that we can be successful. And I think that is a, a novel way to address this. Instead of looking at crossing the finish line, it's figuring out how do we want to come out of the starting block. Absolutely. Because, um, again, if you're focused too much on the outcomes, you'll miss the process and the process will be the thing that undoes you. So you've got to, you've got to pay due attention, uh, due process to the process. Uh, and then, as you say, you've got to get the starting point, you know, firm. you've got to understand what the issues are uh, and then you can kind of move forward. As we wrap up, I do just want to pivot a little bit and we're going to need local context for this as well. I'm a tennis fan, always have been, always will be. I need you to give me the local context of why I should like slash root for Andy Murray because it's an eternal struggle and <laughs> I'm not ready to take that plunge yet. Well, um, you know, with tennis uh, uh, being, uh, you know, from, from the UK, we've had a, a long history of uh, very underwhelming uh, successes, um, you know, in tennis. So, um, you know, the last person that got sort of near it was a guy called Tim Henman, um, who was sort of not well that well liked because he was he was relatively posh um the thing that people like certainly in the uk about andy is that he's um you know he's he's a working class boy and you know he wears his heart on his sleeve um so when he's annoyed he shows it yes, um he does. His, yeah, his, his mum actually and there's a lot of um a lot of love for his mother who was in this strictly come dancing a couple of years ago and uh, and almost won it and she's not a great dancer but um you know the nation really sort of took to her so it's a kind of mother son combo 
that that seems to sort of do it for for us. And you know, we were we were watching um, the Davis Cup this year, and it was it was great to see after I think seventy years, to, you know, to win the Davis Cup. So I think it's a kind of combination of those things. You know, he's actually winning, which is something which is deep to our heart <laughs> in the helps. UK. We don't do a lot of it. We we often lose or come <laughs> second place. So uh, so that's how we could get it. Um, you know, from I can understand why you would struggle from 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 the US perspective. I'm going to keep working at it though, because the more people <laughs> that you can root for, the just the more fun it is. But you know, at the same time, it's always good to have sort of the wrestling heel. It's always have it's always good to have the the guy who has to wear the black hat. Absolutely, it's, absolutely. So this has been fantastic. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep working on all of these projects. Um, everyone, you know, a lot of our listeners, a lot of people that are interested in this stuff are actively working on things, and they will we will continue to face challenges, and we will reach out to you because. There's work to be done and all the tools that we can deploy, particularly at the outset to, to launch us into success, we need them. Well, as I said, I'm here to help. And, um, you know, if, if people want to contact me, uh, I'm easy to, to sort of, uh, you know, get in contact with. So, so certainly do that. And uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Mark. Really enjoyed Th- it. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Cheers. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.